G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Are we a keep-it-to-yourself kind of a church or are we a tell-it-to-the-world kind of a church? Are we a keep-it-to-yourself kind of church or are we a tell-it-to-the-world kind of church. I'd like to read you uh, just the foreword um, of this marvellous little book. It's 30 years old now, but it's hard to believe that given the content of it. It's called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. It's an awful metaphor, isn't it? Ingrown Church. Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. It's by John Miller. Uh, So this is, uh, this bit that I'm reading to you, is another writer introducing Miller's book. It's just from the foreword. Um, And I think it is a live question for churches today. Are we inward and ingrown or are we outward and very much out there? Let me read it to you, see what you make of it. As we knock on the door of the 21st century, we must deal with the ingrown church. Evangelical strength today is found in parachurch ministries, schools and publishing houses but it is not in the ministry effectiveness of the vast majority of local churches. The reason for that lack of ministry effectiveness, John Miller says in this book, is that our churches have become self-centred and ingrown. Miller's objective in this book is not to see small ingrown churches become large ingrown churches. Instead, his burden is primarily a burden for the Kingdom of God and not for any particular local church. His emphasis is on the basic spiritual issues that enable us to move away from self-centeredness. Hence, ingrown church leaders are not called, first of all, to be creative and clever, but rather to faith and repentance. Outgrowing the ingrown church. Good news, Christian church, are we together passionately invested in going outwards and telling the world? Um, Or are we, rather, passionately preserving what is ours for ourselves and growing inwards and shunning and closing and repelling? Keep it to ourselves. The reason I ask that is because I think it's the heart of Genesis chapter 21. Uh, Shall we pray together as we come to the text? Great God in heaven, eternal God, our Father... Would you please quicken our hearts and our heads with the good news of Jesus now? By your Spirit, breathe life, we pray, into aspects of ourselves that are lifeless. Cultivate within us and among us, please, both behaviours and beliefs that nurture spiritual life, both in ourselves and in one another and in others. And may we have the courage to confront, even to cut off, beliefs that are false and behaviours that lead instead to death or even just obscure and frustrate genuine spiritual life. Teach us this morning, please, to live as your children, alive in Christ, adopted in Him. Amen. Genesis 21, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what He had promised... 
Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. So welcome back, uh, at least for our regulars, to Abraham's life. Welcome back to this immensely happy moment, uh, isn't it, in the life of Abraham and Sarah. You might recall Sarah at this stage, she is 90 years old. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Abraham is 100 years old in this little snapshot and yet this is a happy family photo, this is all smiles, this is the youth and vigour of, uh, of a couple with their newborn baby because baby Isaac has arrived. God had said, God had promised and what was initially, do you remember, a cause for snickering, even disbelief, perhaps even indignant scoffing at first, has bubbled up into peals of, of just laughter with these guys now, in relief and smiles. Of course, that's what, that's what Isaac's name means, laughter. Verse 3, have a look with me there, verse 3. Um, Abraham gave the name Isaac, and if you're reading along, you've probably got a footnote, it means he laughs. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him when his son Isaac was eight days old. Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Just take a quick look with me at verse 16. God has brought me laughter. So I think this next bit is the pinnacle of the passage, actually. God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Now, we've got to remember, this isn't just a baby born to a woman who pined for children and prayed for children in her life. As good an answer to prayer as that would have been, this was the baby, wasn't it? Think about the context of Abraham's life, what God's doing in the world at this time. This was the baby, this was the promise. And is it fair to say, I think this is kind of the most impossible, most improbable part of the promises to Abraham and Sarah, at least humanly speaking, Abraham, God had said in Genesis 12, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you, I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, all that's well and good, blessing and greatness and cursed enemies and all the rest, but where's this great nation going to come from, God? Where's this great, vast, bright and happy future, God, for an elderly couple? Do you see? The most improbable, impossible of the promises that God has made. On this day, we have the little family photo. Isaac has arrived. Here he is. Now, here's the upshot for this morning, brothers and sisters. As I said, I reckon verse 6 is the pinnacle. Uh, I think it comes right there. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter... And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. God has been so good to me and I want to share this moment with the world. I want the world to be blessed through me. Contrast that with Sarah's rapid change of heart in a moment. And by the end, did you notice, the world in the form of Abimelech uh, has to come and kind of strong arm a blessing out of Abraham by the end of this passage. Did you notice... Uh, Abimelech brought his army commander, Phicol, to those negotiations. Here's the question for us. Does our laughter in the Lord 
lead us to share our laughter with the world or does it lead us to lovelessness in our hearts for the world around us as we keep our laughter to ourselves? Does our joy in Christ, does our hope in Him, does Christ inspire us to open-handed, open-hearted outreach or to inward-looking, self-serving in-growth, as awful a metaphor as that might be? The thing we've got to remember is our laughter, so to speak, is so much more developed than Sarah's. What we have now to rejoice in in the Lord is so much more. They only had a glimmer, didn't they? They had one little day of laughter where their baby had finally come. What do we have? We look forward to a day when laughter will be forever and all of the, there will, will never be mired by tears and pain again. We have all the promises of God come to fruition in Christ. Our laughter is so much more vast than theirs. So are we Sarah verse 6? Or are we Sarah verse 9? Keep reading with me from verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. So that's Ishmael, probably in his teens by now, Ishmael. And what he does there, it's interesting, that word mocking there, in the Hebrew, it's just another form of exactly the same word, laughter, Isaac, just a more intensive kind of a form there. But now, see, everyone's laughing throughout this passage. For joy, a moment ago, ah, things were wonderful. God's promised, God's delivered, this is brilliant. So, you know, you kind of laugh your head off, it's just brilliant. The whole world's going to laugh with me. When they hear that an old duck like me has a promised baby boy, this is brilliant news. But now, oh, he's laughing all right. But it's not what you'd hoped for. Now, stick with me here, because um, yes, I'm going to say that Sarah did the wrong thing, okay, in what she did. Um, next, and, and we'll see that in just a moment. I think her intentions were absolutely evil, as best as we can tell. I don't think she couldn't give a fig about what happened to Ishmael and Hagar. In fact, I suspect she kind of hoped that they perished in the desert, as awful as that might sound. It would simplify things her, for her enormously. But her actions are understandable, they make a certain kind of sense. Stick with me, verse 9. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. So there he was laughing. And she said to Abraham, Sarah said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Kent Hughes makes this observation. He says, Ishmael's mocking laughter doesn't suggest violence, but Sarah imagines the ominous trajectory and proportions to which that laughter could go. However, he says, there is simply no warrant for thinking that Sarah was acting righteously here. You see, the problem is, Sarah is half right. She's half right in what she says here, because Ishmael won't share in the inheritance with her son. In fact, God had promised it. In fact, that was part and parcel of the promises of her having a baby at all. But let's be clear, humanly speaking, why not? Humanly speaking, why shouldn't Ishmael receive the inheritance? Why shouldn't he stand 
to receive the inheritance, humanly speaking. What, what stands in his way exactly? Or more to the point, who stands in his way? <laughs> he's got a name and his name is Isaac and he's a defenceless little baby boy. Ishmael's mocking laughter does not suggest violence, but Sarah imagines the ominous trajectory and proportions to which the laughter could go. Now, to be sure, it would be a risk for Sarah. But I want us to see, Sarah stands at a crossroads in her heart. Will her laughter in the Lord lead to a lovelessness toward the world? A shunning, a shutting out, a get rid of? Or will it lead her to a risk-taking love for the world? Even Ishmael, even knowing that having him under her roof carries this risk with it. Remember though, she has been assured by God, the same God who gave her this impossible baby, if God has promised that Isaac will receive the whole inheritance, if God has promised that Isaac, your baby, will receive the entire inheritance, then Sarah, don't you have a vision for Isaac blessing his stepbrother? Or can you only think of shunning and of cursing and of not sharing and a get rid of them? It does make you wonder, doesn't it? Why does God side with Sarah's request? Read on with me there, verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Folks, very quickly, two little asides here. Uh, Perhaps they'll they'll start to help us particularly next week. Number one, uh, this promise, this is not new news for Abraham. That, That little bit at the end, verse 11, I will make the son of the maidservant, so Hagar's son Ishmael, into a nation because he is your offspring. That, that is not news for Abraham. Do we remember that? I think that's important to recognise. So back in uh, Genesis 17, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I'll make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I'll make him into a great nation. This, this was God's words to Abraham and on one of the occasions that he promised him the son Isaac, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you uh, by this time next year. That's firstly, this wasn't new news, but secondly, and let's just put this in our back pocket for next week, because if you know what comes next week, the sacrifice of Isaac, one of the most heart-rending passages in Scripture, this may just help us a little bit. Because uh, what this is saying is, Abraham... It sure looks like you're sending your beloved son, Ishmael, this week. It sure looks like you're sending your beloved son out to die in the wilderness, doesn't it? But I, Abraham, I have promised every blessing and success for him. Does that help us just a little bit when we come to next week? Abraham, perhaps you feel like you are signing off on the death of your son. You're not, because I have promised Remember it. Just a little preparation. We'll come back to that when we come to Genesis 22 um, next week. Verse 14, uh, read along with me there. 
Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. That word put, as in put the boy under the bushes, the word put suits the exhausted action of one who had half supported and half dragged her son to the shade of the bush. And she just, she can't bear to be there. There's no use pretending as if this passage isn't, as if this scene isn't as awful as it sounds, folks. And just to think, you know, it could have been averted if Sarah had had a little bit more room in her heart, if she had a little bit more theological imagination, a little more determination to bless rather than get rid of. But see, here's why... Well, actually, I mean, how many, how many people in this world today suffer and languish in this world because we Christians have a smaller heart to share our Lord than we ought to? Yeah. Just a passing thought. So here's why I think God can go along with Sarah's plan, though. Because with or without her, God's going to keep his promises. You want to get rid of Hagar? You want to get rid of Ishmael? Fine. But, verse 17... God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up, take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer while he was living in the desert of Paran. His mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Folks, the birth of Isaac, it was never just about Abraham and Sarah, was it? God had his eye on the world and we should have seen it, we should have seen it coming, we should have seen it right from the start of God's promises. Uh, Genesis 12, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you, I'll make your name great. Yes, all of those things, but and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The birth of Isaac was never just about Abraham and Sarah. God gave them a laughter that they could share. And now for us today, the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus was never just about God's little plan. Whether the Jews originally, whether churchy types today, no, God has his eye on the world. He has given us a laughter that we can share with the world around us. And I guess the question is, how are we going at our little crossroads within our hearts? Are we Sarah verse 6 or Sarah verse 9? Now, by way of, um, I guess, an extended little conclusion, would you please come with me to Romans, Romans 9 at first? We'll get to Romans 10 in just a moment. Uh, because with Jesus, um, you see, suddenly lots of people who thought themselves insiders suddenly found themselves very much outsiders, didn't they? Uh, the, the historic people of God, um, they were more like abandoned Ishmael than they were like lucky Isaac. 
Um, just take a look at the way Paul, uh, Paul, a Jew himself, um, likens non-Christian Jews, not to Isaac, but to Ishmael. Come with me to Romans 9, if you've got it on your lap, or it'll come up on the screen with me. Uh, and Paul likens, as I said, non-Christian Jews, not to Isaac, but to cast out Ishmael. Romans 9 verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit, says Paul. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons, there's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Just notice that's one of the few passages in the New Testament that explicitly says Christ is God. Worth noting, you know, just whenever they come up, I want to point, them to, point you to them. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, there's lots in there, I know that, but did you catch it? The point is this, guys, God saves who he wants. No one has ever been saved just because they're an insider, no one has ever been saved just because they've got the right dad. Ishmael wasn't. What matters is, have you got God's promises? What matters is, have God's promises got you? Now skip forward to chapter 10, because the question then becomes, not just have I got God's promises, it becomes, what about the people who haven't got God's promises? What about everyone who hasn't got them, haven't heard? What about the world out there? So chapter 10, verse 9, let's pick it up there. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? This is how to be an insider in the people of God. Uh, verse 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. What a passage for a day with professions of faith. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what about the world out there? What about the outsiders? Is it just for us? so that we've got our laughter and we can keep it to ourselves? Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. From time to time, the plight of the world around us, it does come in on us, I think. It sure comes in on me and I'm sure it comes in on you as well. The plight of the world around us. What about them? 
Does the plight of the world trouble you, brothers and sisters? Then this is saying, strap on your gospel shoes. Put on your beautiful feet. To put it in Genesis 21 language, does our laughter in the Lord lead to a lovelessness toward the world or to a love for the world that seeks to share our laughter with the world around us? So, brothers and, brothers and sisters, finally, firstly, actually, I want to sound a note of, of just real genuine encouragement for us. I am so, I am just genuinely, I'm thankful to God, I'm so encouraged, I'm heartened by the way in which together I think we're building momentum in evangelism, in outreach to the community around us. It is a joy to me every time that I see, every time that I hear of a conversation had, an invitation extended. And didn't we see so many new faces again yesterday or the other week at the kids' club? That is just so great to see. It is such an encouragement. Good on you. Keep going. But on the other hand, I've got to confess, I felt quite convicted recently at how little time still I spend among non-church, non-Christian friends, how few inroads I'm making, and I wonder if you're the same, uh, in the lives of people who aren't from our lot, you know? who are very much from the outside, who are more the Ishmaels, the Abimelechs, the Fikols of the world, rather than the Isaacs. How has it come to a point where I spend so little time with new people? Have I forgotten what the Gospel is for? Have I forgotten how good it is for new people to hear and embrace the good news of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, I reckon Genesis 21 reminds us, outreach isn't just our thing, because it's the flavour of our church or anything like that. Rather, no, think of it, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Now, outreach isn't just our thing, it's a God thing. It's always been that way from the very beginning and it always will be. Let's pray and ask that God would enlarge our hearts to be more like his. Our Father in heaven, some of us have very clear memories of that moment where the gospel all came together for us. Perhaps we were raised in Christian homes, perhaps we weren't. But some of us have a very clear memory of, of that day or that time where the gospel gripped us. Others of us, Father, have a more progressive story and we can tell of your kindnesses to us as you revealed yourself to us over time, but there wasn't a climactic moment. But Father, all of those who call on the name of Jesus amongst us can tell of the joy that we have in Christ, the joy that we've enjoyed in him, the laughter in our hearts that you've put there by the gospel. Father, that is your work in us. It is your grace to this world. Lord God, would you please take hold of our hearts increasingly and grant them to reflect the heart of our Saviour more and more. May we love the world with the kind of love that you have for it, not the kind of love where we're obsessed by it and consumed by it, but rather where we're given to it for its salvation in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the encouragements that you've given us, even this year, even this weekend, uh, as we've sought to make connections with the community around us, 
Uh, Lord God, would you please enable us to continue building momentum in that way, not because that's what our church is about, but because the cause of the gospel is what you're about in the world. Um, Father in heaven, we pray that we would undertake these efforts for the glory of your name and not for the glory of ourselves. Father, quicken our hearts, please, with an increase in the light in the gospel of Jesus that drives us out into the world more and more. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.